Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to have you here to worship with us this morning. I'd like to welcome you who are online joining us as well. You're welcome. We thank you for being here. Lord, we, we gather together because we're here to worship the Lord. And it is an Advent Sunday, and the theme is joy. And so we're going to read together from the scriptures responsibly a passage from Luke that tells part of the Christmas story that emphasizes the part where the angels come and say, joy to the world. So let's read together. If you would stand, we will read together from the book of Luke. And just follow the prompts on the screen. I'll read parts and you'll read parts. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to baby to be born. So she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger.
be seated. Good morning. It is good to be gathered with you here this morning as we continue to walk through this Advent Christmas season. We're just delighted to come together to worship and celebrate all that God has done for us in, <clears throat> in sending Christ to die on our behalf. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, my name's Tim. I'm the, the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are just glad that you're here with us for this time of worship. If you are visiting, or there's anything you'd like the church to know, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out with any information you want us to have, and then you can drop those in the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where tithes and offering can be placed this morning. Just a couple of announcements to bring to your attention as we walk through this the Christmas season. A couple of events going on to this morning following the worship service at 1045. We'll have our children's Christmas program. We invite you to stick around for that and enjoy hearing the Christmas story told through our children. Coming up the Thursday, the 21st, we'll have Women's Common Ground here, an event for, for women who we'd invite you to be a part of. And then next Sunday on Christmas Eve, we will have both our regular Sunday morning service and an evening service at 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve. So we'd invite you to join us for those as well. And of course, this is December. The following December, we come to January. And January is often a time where we can think through maybe some habits and rhythms we want to instill in our lives in the new year. And so one of the habits we're going to encourage you to maybe think about pursuing is the habit of scripture memory. And so to talk a little bit more about that, I'm going to ask Emma Ogren to come and share a little bit about scripture memory. I am not sharing today because I am an expert. In fact, I'm offering to share because I am a failure when it comes to scripture memory. A lot of us have had background maybe of going to Awana and memorizing verses. Maybe you grew up um, understanding how important it is. But, and I've done all those. <clears throat> I've been an Awana leader, and um, I understand. But I do not have God's word stored in my heart the way I wish I did. So um, last week you noticed there was a, if you have the bulletin, there was a flyer in the bulletin, and um, this week there is a verse from Dallas Willard, or a quote from him in here, that talks about, if I had to choose between all the disciplines of spiritual life, I would choose Bible memorization. And the rest of that quote says, I know of no other single practice in the Christian life more rewarding. And I guess... A lot of us come to church and we kind of approach it like um, Christmas. We love going. We um, like the ham. We love the Christmas cookies. We love seeing our friends. But then someone passes something like the lutefisk or the pickled herring, and we just say, you know what, I'm just going to pass. So some of us can't come, and then out falls this flyer about scripture memorization, and we say, yeah, I'm really bad at that. I'm just going to pass. So I'm here today just to challenge you. Um, this week, we don't have to decide today, but what I am going to challenge you is this week sometime, 
when you're alone, if it's just as you're falling asleep or if it's when you wake up in the night, just say, how many verses of scripture can I recite by heart? How many have I committed to memory? How prepared am I to um, give testimony to God's word? And I've done that myself, and I'm very disappointed. This Just this morning, as Nancy was sharing a story about her grandson, he made a comment, and right away Nancy had that verse that just um, spoke to what he had brought up. And I want to be that person, and I want to challenge you. So just my parting word today is there are 200, approximately 200 million Muslims who have memorized the entire Quran. And this week, as you go through and you think, how many verses can I recite by heart? Some of you I know um, can recite half of the Psalms, all of Romans 12, uh, Colossians 3 and 4, um, Deuteronomy 6, but some of us would be hard-pressed to come up with a dozen verses that we can recite well and know where they're found. So this week, your assignment is, how many verses do I know by heart? And unless you really are satisfied with where you are, I want to challenge you, and next week we'll come back and talk about it some more. Thanks, Emmy. So I'd encourage you, as Emmy said, just to consider what that would look like in your life and what it would mean to memorize Scripture in the coming year. There's in that that insert in your bulletin. There's information from from Fighter Verses. So you can find more information about that program by going to just googling Fighter Verses and learn more there. So that's a a program I'll invite you to walk with us through in the coming year. Kind of have that in mind. But as we continue the time of worship and we fix our hearts and our minds on all that God has done for us, I just invite you to join me now in a time of prayer. Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for the privilege it is to gather here this morning in this place as your people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as co heirs with Christ, all because of what Jesus accomplished and what started at that first Christmas when he came to earth to dwell among us and he grew up and he lived among us and was like us in every way yet without sin. Because of what Jesus has done, through faith in him he's given us his righteousness, so we can gather here as your people to worship you, to glorify you, to sing praises to you. So, Father, this morning I pray that we would remember well what Jesus has done. We would think deeply on all that it means for us that God took on flesh and lived among us. And as we reflect and as we think on what it accomplished, that it would motivate us with gratitude and awe and wonder to live lives that bring you honor and glory and praise. Father, this morning and as we continue to walk closer and closer to Christmas, as we walk through this Advent season, would you work in our hearts and in our minds to 
remind us and refresh in us the wonder that comes from remembering all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness, and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. 
As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. this third Sunday of Advent, we celebrate the joy of Christ coming to earth. In the Bible, joy is a depth of happiness that cannot be deterred by present circumstances. This type of joy comes from God alone. In Luke 2, we read, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that it will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in snugly strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by the vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. When the angels had returned to heaven... They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was a baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, shepherds told everyone what had happened, what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. And it was just as the angels had As we light this candle, let us reflect on how our joy doesn't come from our jobs our family, our relationships, our finances, or our success. Our joy doesn't come from what we have on earth or who we, who we are with. Our joy is a gift. 
It is a gift that God gave us that first Christmas in Jesus Christ. Our joy is encompassed in our Savior, King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this third week of Advent, let us remember that the good news of Jesus' birth has the power to bring us great joy this Christmas season. Our joy isn't dependent on what is like what is going on in our life, in our world, or the people that we are with. It doesn't depend on the gifts we give or the gifts we find under the tree. No earthly thing can ever give us complete joy. Our joy comes from you, that joy that flooded the hearts of the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, the hosts of heaven, and Mary and Joseph is the joy that still has the power to overwhelm our hearts with rejoicing. Amen. Let us now continue our worship. If you'd stand together, let's sing.
Father, we again praise and thank you we can gather this morning to, to celebrate the, the birth of King Jesus, that he, he came and He dwelt among us, and He was born among us in order to make a way for us to be forgiven and have eternal life. Thank you for that. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Kids in 4K through second grade have the option at this time to go downstairs for children's church. Each year, over 60 million people visit New York City. And I can't understand any of them. Like, it's like if you made a list of places I wanted to visit, right, New York City's like bottom 10%. Right? Like, that many people, that much noise, that much busyness, like it has no appeal for me. Right? Like the reason we live where we do, right? Like New York is famously the city that never sleeps. But I like, I like sleep. Like, <laughs> but there is one place in New York City that intrigued me, and that's the New York Public Library. Right, the New York Public Library is the, the third largest public library in the United States, behind only the Library of Congress and the Boston Public Library. And it contains over 16 million books throughout the system. And for me, as a, someone who loves books, right, the idea of, of sitting in the famous Rose reading room and, and just reading, right, and just knowing that I'm surrounded by that many books has a, an appeal for me. And the New York Public Library started because of a man named John Jacob Astor. When he died, he left $400,000 in his will for the creation of a public library in New York City. So that... $400,000 is equivalent to $13.5 million today. And Astor could give that kind of money because he was the first multimillionaire in U.S. history. And one of the ways he gained his wealth was by being the first real estate mogul in the United States. He bought all this land, he, he developed it, and one of his most famous acquisitions was a parcel of land on which one of his grandchildren would eventually build the original Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Waldorf for the town in Hungary where Astor was born in Astoria for Astor. John Jacob Astor was hands down the richest man in America at the time. And the kind of wealth he had is what economists would call generational wealth. That is wealth that not only affords you an easy free life, but it's enough wealth that your kids and your grandkids and generations after you are assured of an easy life as well as that money is invested and passed down generation to generation through wills and estates and trusts. And we see this clearly with the Astor family. So John Jacob Astor IV, this guy, so he's the, ori he's the original John Jacob Astor's great-grandson, and he was one of the richest men in the world as well, with a net worth over $2 billion when he died on the Titanic in 1912. He's the richest man on the Titanic. Okay. 
And that, that act or wealth throughout that family continues to trickle down even today. A few years ago, Brooke Astor died at the age of 105. And there was a kind of big court case in which her son was accused of taking advantage of her mental state in her last year to alter her will. This was a big deal because even all these generations later, Brooke Astor had lots of money to leave in her will. And she had originally left a large portion of her wealth to charities in her will. But her, her will in her last year was, was tweaked to benefit this son, and her son was accused of, in her final year, that she suffered from Alzheimer's, of, of altering her will to benefit himself. And it was eventually shown that he did do that, and he was found guilty of grand larcency and scheming to defraud, and he was sentenced to up to three years in prison. And so the story of the Ather family is a story that highlights the, the importance of, of wills. From John Jacob founding the New York Public Library through a donation left in his will, to all this wealth being passed down from generation to generation, in particular, right, the story of Brooke Ather and her will highlights the important fact that wills are legally binding. And to attempt to alter them is to break the law. And in today's passage in Galatians 3, Paul is going to compare a promise that God gave to Abraham to a last will and testament. And if point is going to be that, that God's promise that he gave to Abraham was not negated or canceled or altered when, 400 years later, he gave the law to Moses. So to put it kind of a little more succinctly, that God promised to Abraham was not revoked by the law given to Moses, but as we'll see, it was fulfilled by Christ. The promise God gives to Abraham is finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And the law's purpose, which came 400 years later, was not to revoke or change the promise God gave to Abraham. Instead, the law was to serve another purpose all together. And so my hope this morning is that we'll see First, how Jesus fulfilled the promise that God gave to Abraham. And then understand how it is that the law actually fits in with the promise that God gave to Moses. And so to do that, would you look at Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29 with me this morning as I, as I read. Paul writes this in Galatians 3. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement. And that word that Paul uses there for irrevocable agreement is the Greek word for last will and testament. Just no one can amend a will. So it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather it says to his child. And that of course means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham cannot be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. 
God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. And now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now the way of faith has come. We no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heir, and God promised to Abraham belongs to you. There's a lot going on in this passage. We're going to walk through this morning, but the first thing we see is the primacy of the promise. Verse 17, Paul says, The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. And Paul's point here is that God gave this promise to Abraham. It came first. And because it came first, and because it was a promise, it can't be revoked and it can't be canceled. If it were, God would be breaking his promise, and God doesn't break promises. This all then raises the question, like, what exactly was the promise that God made to Abraham? God states and restates the promise to Abraham several times in, in the book of Genesis, but the first place we see it is in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise, right? That God is going to make Abraham into a great nation and he's going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. And the important thing for us to see is right, that Abraham received this promise not by keeping a set of laws, not because God was extra happy with him for good behavior, but Abraham received the promise simply by having faith that God would keep this promise. Back in verse 6 of Genesis 3, Paul said, In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. Paul goes on to say, What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. 
that God promised Abraham was that the nations, all nations on earth, would be blessed through him. And Abraham received that, that promise by believing God, by faith, not by his works. It wasn't works that made Abraham right with God. And Paul said that the promise, part of the promise is that one day, Abraham would have a child. And it's through that child that this promise would find its ultimate fulfillment. That child would be the one who would would bless all the nations of the earth. One of my, my favorite Christmas traditions that we do as a family is that each December, starting December 1st, we we read one story from the, from the Jesus Storybook Bible to our kids each night. And it just so happens that the Jesus Storybook Bible has, has 21 stories from the Old Testament and then three stories that are about the birth of Jesus. And so we end up reading about the birth of Christ in the three days leading up to Christmas. But the biggest strength of the Jesus Storybook Bible is what they say is that every story whispers his name, that it's focused on how the Old Testament points us forward to Jesus. And as we are reading through these stories this year, and I've thinking a lot about Galatians and Abraham and all this stuff, it just struck me how well this explains the promise of Abraham being fulfilled in Christ. So I just want to read a little, a little snippet from this to you that I think sums this all up very well. This is from the story of of God promised Abraham to give him a child. But Paul said this, And then God told Abraham his secret rescue plan. Abraham, I will make your family very big, God promised, until one day your family will come to number more than even all the stars in the sky. Abraham looked up at the dark night sky, thick with stars. You will be my special family, my people, Through you, everyone on earth will be blessed. It was an incredible promise. God was going to rescue the world through Abraham's family. One of his great, great, great grandchildren would be the child, the promised one, the rescuer. But it's too wonderful, Abraham said. How can it be true? Is anything too good to be true, God asked. Is anything too wonderful for me? So Abraham trusted what God said more than what his eye could see, and he believed. God would do as he promised. He would always look after Abraham's family, his special people. And one day, God would send another baby, a baby promised to a girl who didn't even have a husband. But this baby would bring laughter to the whole world. This baby would be how everyone's dreams come true. And that baby, of course, is... It's Jesus that we celebrate this Advent season, the coming of that baby. The promise that God made to Abraham was to bless all the nations of the earth and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The way all the nations of the earth are blessed is through believing that Jesus comes and he offers forgiveness of sins. That he offered eternal life to anyone who believes in him based on their faith not on what they have done or will do. Paul says in verse 9, all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing that Abraham received by his faith. It's all based on those who put their faith in Christ. Not by obeying the law, not by 
keeping a certain set of commandments, like by believing in Jesus, we receive the promise that Abraham received. So if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus right, to forgive your sins, to make you right with God, to give you eternal life, I just urge you to do that. Right? That is what Christmas is all about, what God has done for us in sending Jesus. Right? No matter what you've done, no matter what sins you may be fighting or will fight in the future, God forgave them in Christ. You're here, you never trusted in Him. Like, do that today. And Paul's been arguing all through this book that, that salvation is based on this faith in Christ and not works of the law. So Paul says in verse 17, the agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God promised that Abraham would save God promised Abraham that he would save people of all nations by faith, not by works. And then the law comes along and it kind of seems like it's saying this is how you're saved by works. But the purpose of the law was never to save. The promise came first. It has primacy. And the law then has to have a different purpose. Trades the question, then what is the purpose of the law? If it's not to save us, it's not to teach us how to be made right with God in our own power, then what was the purpose of the law? And that's the very question Paul himself asks and answers in verse 19. Why then, he says, was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. So Paul here tells us that the purpose of the law was to, to show people their, their sins. And when I say like, the purpose of the law is to show us our sins, what I don't mean is that the law is not, the law is not saying, like, oh, here's an area or two where you, where you fall a little bit short, right? but if you just apply yourself, you'll get there in no time. Right? That's not what the law is doing. Right? During the, kind of the end of my time as an elementary school teacher, my, my school was transitioning away from the traditional A, B, C, D, F grading scale what we call standards-based grading. So instead of an A, B, C, D, or F, a student either earned a, a 4, which meant they exceeded the standard, or a 3, which meant they met the standard, or a 2, which meant they were approaching the standard, or a 1, which meant they were developing proficiency in the standard. And the idea behind all this was to remove the concept of and the stigma of failure from grading. Right? But to give the impression that, that each child was on a path of continual improvement. There was never a failure, it was just a constant string of improvement. Right? And when I was a teacher, like, I wasn't paid enough to have an opinion about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Right? But what I do know right, is that sometimes we treat our inability to keep God's commands like standard-based grading. We say, like, yeah, like I'm not quite meeting the standard yet, but I'm approaching the standard. And if I just keep working at it, I just apply myself, I will get there eventually. But that's not what Paul means when he says that the law was given to show us our sins. Right? It wasn't given to show us areas of improvement. What Paul means, right, 
When he said that the law was given to show us our sins, that the law was given to show us that we have a big fat F on our morality report card. Look at verse 22. But the scriptures declare that we are prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. The law is not there to just show us that we occasionally sin sometimes. The law is there to show us that in our own power we can't help but to sin and keep on sinning. We're, we're prisoners to sin. It holds us in our power. Right? Right? Prisoners don't choose to sleep in a jail cell each night. If, if they just had enough willpower, they could freely walk out the front door of prison. Like That's not how prison works. Likewise, because we're prisoners of sin. We can't, by our own sheer willpower alone, stop sinning. And therefore, we can't, by our own willpower alone, save ourselves and earn God's favor. We can never meet the law's requirements on our own. Therefore, we can't earn salvation by obedience and good deeds. The law was, was never intended to save us. It was intended to show us our sins. And to make us see that we receive God's promise of freedom by believing in Jesus Christ. So the law shows us our sin. But that's not where the law stops. The law isn't just some hypercritical parent who's critical for no reason other than they enjoy being critical. The law was given by God to show us our sins, yes, but then also to show us our need of a Savior, and then also to prepare us for how to live when that Savior came and freed us. Look how Paul explains this in verses 23-25. He said, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. This word translated guardian here doesn't have a perfect English equivalent. But it's a word for someone that wealthy Roman families would hire to raise and educate their children. It's a it's kind of a, a mix of nanny and tutor and social etiquette coach all rolled into one. The guardian was responsible for preparing the child for life outside of the confines of the home. They were to prepare the child for life once they were outside of the authority of the family and of that guardian. And in the same way, the law is to prepare us for life when we're no longer under the authority of the law. I think of it this way, like, my wife and I, we, we raise our kids, and as we raise them, we're, we're trying to, to raise them with values and priorities and, and character traits that we think are important. And as we do that, our hope is not that when they leave home and live on their own, they'll think, well, now I'm free of mom and dad's authority, so now I can live however I want. I'm going to totally disregard everything they taught me. Like, I hope that's not what happens. Like it is true that one day they will be free of our authority. But like my deep hope right, is that we've raised them as we've shown them 
given them boundaries and we've tried to instill values in them and we've tried to pass on knowledge to them. I hope they understand that we didn't give them those things just because. We taught them those values and those boundaries because we believe they're how life works best and we want what is good for them. My deepest hope and prayer is that when my kids get out and they live their own lives and they're free from my authority, that they will think and they will experience, like, man, like, life works better when I live the way mom and dad tried to teach me. That's the way I was meant to live. I'm not under their authority anymore, but I want to keep living this way because I believe that it's the best way to live life. The law should play the same role in our life. With the coming of Jesus, we've been set free from the authority of the law. But the law was not just a set of arbitrary hoops to jump through to prove our devotion to God. God gave us the law because life works best when we live according to God's law. God, if the creator of all things, he knows what is good, and because he loved us, he wants good things for us. He wants us to live how life works best. And so he gave us the law, yet to show us our sin, yet to point us to Jesus, but also to prepare us for how to live once we're no longer under the authority of the law. Last April, I preached four sermons on, on the Sabbath. And one of the things I said during that series is that Christians often debate whether the command of Sabbath is still binding. There are faithful Christians on both sides of the debate, but I said then that largely because of what Paul says in Galatians about freedom in Christ, I personally don't think the command to Sabbath is still binding on us. I don't think it's a sin at the Sabbath. And yet, most Saturdays around 10:15, you'll find our family sitting down to a special brunch with either donuts or cinnamon rolls or what we call special cereal, which is just sugary cereal. We don't want them to eat other times. Right? And there'll be, a, there'll be a candle lit and a, a special tablecloth on the table. We'll enjoy that meal together. It's the, the way we start our Sabbath rhythm. And we aren't perfect at keeping it, right? but we try to make the 24-hour from 10, 15 Saturday morning to 10.15 Sunday morning, a time set apart for Sabbath. We don't do that because we think it's required for Christians. We do that because we're trying to please God by jumping through this hoop. We do that because we believe that God made us. And that we function best when we observe the Sabbath rhythm that God hardwired into us. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Right? So the Sabbath is not a hoop we jump through to please God. The Sabbath is not one step in earning forgiveness or earning our salvation. The Sabbath is a gift given to us because it's how life works best. And the same is true for the rest of the law as well. So Paul's point, when he says that the law is not what saves us, the law is not how we are made right with God, his point is not that we should just totally throw out the law and never think about it again. 
Paul's point is that the law is not the means of our salvation, but there's still value in it. The purpose of the law is not to teach us what rules we must keep in order to be saved. Right? To show us our sin. To show us our need for Jesus as a Savior. And beyond that, the law teaches us how to live. Or to use Paul's language at the end of this passage, the, the law teaches us how to put on Christ. The purpose of the law it shows us our sin. It's not, it's not, the law's not there to try to just to get us to wallow in self-pity and think, oh, what a terrible person I am. Right? The law shows us our, our sin in order to cause us to look for a solution beyond ourselves. And there's, a, there's a series of questions in the New City Catechism that I think sums all this up well. The question 13 is this. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? And the provided answer is, since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. And question 14 then asks, so then did God create us unable to keep his law? And the answer is no, but because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation have fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. Which then leads to the question that we've been talking about this morning. Question 15 is, so since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And the answer the Catechism gives, which I think is a good one, is this. That you may know the holy nature and will of God, and the sinful nature of and disobedience of your hearts. Right? So that's what we talk about. The, the law shows us our sin, but then it goes on to say, and that's our need of a Savior, and the law points us forward to Jesus. Right? And, here's the key sentence for us this morning, the law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our Savior. And that last part, I think, is so important. It's one of the questions that it's easy to ask as we walk through the series. In this series, we've been talking about like, how we're saved by Jesus plus nothing, right? That it's not our good works that save us. And that it's because of Jesus dying in our place and giving us his righteousness that we are saved, and that none of us are good enough on our own to be saved. So, like, it's all because of Jesus. But then that leads to the question, right? Well, if it's because of Jesus, then can I live however I want? Does that mean that God doesn't care about my behavior at all? I think we all kind of instinctively know right, that the answer to that is, is no. Right? That God does care about how we live. There's lots of ethical instruction in the New Testament about how to live as Christians. But the, the connection we sometimes struggle to make is, how do I reconcile being saved by Jesus plus nothing with living the way that Jesus has called me to live. And Paul helps us make that connection in verse 27, when he says this, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. We, we believe in Jesus. We put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. When we trust in Jesus, something about us fundamentally changes. We put on Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, as Paul said earlier. 
And the New Testament is full of this idea that we should live lives that look like the life of Jesus. John writes in 1 John, Whoever abides in him, that is Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Which raises the question, well then how did Jesus walk? How did Jesus live? And the answer is, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the law. Jesus lived perfectly obedient to the law, which Jesus said can be summed up in two commandments. Right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as ourselves. As yourselves. So if we're to put on Christ, if we're to walk as Jesus walked, if we're to be imitators of Jesus, right? that doesn't mean we just throw out the law, because Jesus obeyed the law of God perfectly. We don't just say, well, there's nothing in this for me now that Christ has come. The law is still there to teach us and to show us how to live, but what changes is our our motivation for why we keep the law. Our motivation goes from fear and trying to earn our salvation to gratitude and a desire to please and be like Jesus. And the incredible thing which Tim Keller points out is this. Once we come to the law motivated by gratitude instead of fear, we are better in our obedience of the law than we ever were when we thought our obedience might save us. And the reason for this, he says, is if we think that law obedience will save us, we will become emotionally incapable of admitting just how searching and demanding it is. For example, Jesus said that to resent or disdain anyone is a form of murder. But only if we know that we cannot keep it completely, but that we don't need to keep it at all to be saved because, of, because Christ did it for us, will we be able to admit just how broad and deep this command is. If we are seeking to be saved by our obedience to the law, we will constantly be trying to limit the scope and application of God's law in order to make it more manageable for us to keep. But when we're free, when we're set free, knowing that our obedience to the law can never save us in the first place, then we're free to see the full scope of the law and all that God demands in it. We can see our failure. We can repent and confess of that failure and turn to Jesus, trust that he already forgave us, but seeking to live the life he called us to live. Only when we understand that God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ. Only when we understand that Jesus has already done everything required for our salvation. Only when we're motivated by love and gratitude instead of fear and shame will we be able to make real progress in actually keeping the law as God intended it? Only then will we we be able to put on Christ. Only then will we be able to live like he did, like he called us to live. So as as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate that God came to earth, that he, he put on flesh, he put on humanity in order to save us from our sins. 
Let us then respond to what Jesus did for us by, by putting on Christ ourselves and living like him. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for Jesus coming and taking on flesh and living among us living a sinless life, being perfectly obedient to the law on our behalf and going to the cross for us so that when we believe in Jesus, you see us as if we had lived the the sinless, perfect life that Jesus lived. No matter what sins we fight, no matter what sins are in our past, we're forgiven and you see us as if we and live the perfect life of Jesus. Father, we thank you for that. We, we confess and we repent of all the times we thought we could earn your favor through our own obedience, all the times we thought we could earn our salvation by keeping the law. Father, we pray that you would help us, remind us of the gospel, help us trust in Jesus. Father, as we trust in Jesus, I pray that you would fill our hearts with, with gratitude and thanksgiving for what you have done for us in Christ and out of the overflow of that gratitude that we would be compelled to live the life you have called us to live. That we would put on Christ not as a way to earn your favor, but as a way to show our gratitude for what you've done for us by sending Jesus. Father, we thank you for giving us the law and your commandment to show us how to live, to show us how life works best. I pray that you would help us see the the futility in in chasing after other things that the world says will, will make us happy or bring us joy. Father, we will find our joy in trusting in Jesus and in living the life you have called us to live. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. After the service, I want you to head downstairs, have a little snack, and then come back up for the children's program this morning. It'll be a delight to hear the Christmas story rehearsed by those kids. So as you go this morning, would you go amazed once again by all that God has done for you in Jesus? And out of gratitude desiring to put on Christ, you are dismissed.
Thank you.